Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and know that you are welcome. As always, to the nook, to Tales to Terrify, and welcome to the end of 2012 and the near end of our first year in the webby ether of podcasting. Good evening, I am Lawrence Santoro, and what a show we have for you tonight. My apologies, by the way, for bombarding all your favorite Facebook pages all last week. It is, as I have said, that I am adult and did not know that our little weekly gathers here at Tales to Terrify have been in the running for another award. This one being for the Podcast of the Year in the British This Is Horror Awards. The balloting will end at 12.01 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time on Friday, January 4th, 12.13. So, there is still time, brothers and sisters, as you are here and hopefully enjoying these evenings that we spend together in the nook. I hope you'll go over to the This Is Horror site and do as instructed. That is at http colon slash slash this is horror.co.uk slash awards slash. We'll put that URL at the bottom of the page. Okay? Okay. And there are several other categories of horror tale telling for which you can cast a thought to the world novels, stories, films, soundtracks, tattoo artist of the year. Yes, events, video games, and as Mr. Kurt says, the horror. The horror. And, don't forget, you still have a few weeks left to sign up for the writing science fiction mini-course being offered at the Starship Sofa, and that will take place on Saturday, January 26, 2013, beginning at 8 p.m. and going to 9.30 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time. 
Spider Robinson, author of the Callahan's Crosstime Saloon stories, Stardance, Mind Killer, Night of Power, and the most recent Very Hard Choices, will gather you into his world and share his life and times with you. Go to any of the neighborhoods of the District of Wonders and click on the link and join the class. Okay. Yes, it is that time of the year. It is not my favorite time, I must say. Christmas is my favorite, and since New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day mark the end of the Christmas season, I have borne a lifelong animus against it. Alas, it always seemed to me a sad time. Not so much a time for looking forward to the new, but a time to lament the old by making vows to not do that, whatever that was, again, in the new year. Sadly, I've never been one to lament very much. Well, there are a few things I have lamented, but enough of that. No, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and in particular, New Year's parties, for me, were always sad affairs. Too much drinking, too much enforced gaiety with silly hats and pooty-chooty noisemakers and maudlin Scots music and academic football and, well, well, that's enough on that. And now I am about to do a wee favor for a few of you. In a few days, we all will have to sing a song that we, most of us, have been forced to sing since childhood, and which well, I have never fully kenned. I almost have it. It almost always nearly made sense, but I'm going to read it now in translation from Robert Burns. It is, Should old acquaintance be forgot, and never brought to mind, should old acquaintance be forgot for olden days gone by? And then the chorus, which repeats, For olden days gone by, my dear, for olden days gone by, will take a cup of kindness yet for olden days gone by. And surely you'll buy your pint cup, and surely I'll buy mine, and will take a cup of kindness yet for olden days gone by. We, too, have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since olden days gone by. We, too, have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dinner time, but seas between us broad have roared since olden days gone by. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give us a hand of thine, and we'll take a right good will draft for olden days gone by. For olden days gone by, my dear, for olden days gone by, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for olden days gone by. Well, enough of that. By next week, all the hats and horns, all the hangovers and promises, the acquaintances of the party will be forgot. And we'll be back here to celebrate the 52nd show of our little life here on the web. But for now, for this week, we have a story for you. 
the story for our gathering on the eve before the eve before the eve before that eve is a chilly little ditty by one Thomas Smith. Born in 1958, Thomas Smith says he's considerably younger than many people born the same year. Well, I, I know the feeling. But Mr. Smith is an award-winning writer, essayist, playwright, reporter, and TV news producer. His work has appeared in numerous publications, from Cemetery Dance Magazine to Exploring Alaska. He has written jokes for Joan Rivers, had a number of plays produced, and writes really bad poetry, he says. <laughs> well, don't we all, as you will see. His supernatural suspense novel... Something Stirs, a tribute to his friend and mentor, the late Charles L. Grant, is the first haunted house novel for the Christian market. Here is The Heart is a Determined Hunter by Thomas Smith. Lloyd McPherson dialed the telephone, the world went dark. At least that was the illusion created by the first dark clouds of the coming storm as they pushed the October sun out of the way. As it was, Lloyd barely noticed. His connection had already failed twice, and the one that was coaxing the second ring from the phone on the other end was tenuous at best. He debated the idea of calling the Stedman Resort for almost two days, and right or wrong, He'd finally placed the call. The line popped and crackled, the ghost of past conversations unaware they were long finished. Lloyd's finger hovered over the tiny plunger that held the power to terminate the connection. Twice he pulled back at the last second, an instant away from the comforting buzz of a new dial tone. He was still not too sure. Thank you for calling the Stedman Resort. How may I be of service this afternoon? What? The world swam back into focus in one large wave. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, I was a little preoccupied. Of course, sir. How may I be of service? The voice was steady, that sort of well-bred, professionally aloof hotel voice, a voice that implied the sort of patience gained after a lifetime of serving the public's whims and fancies. Lloyd stopped drumming his fingers long enough to pick up a pen and start tapping the capped end on a weekly organizer pad with the label, Stupid Stuff I Gotta Do This Week. He tapped on the third item on the list. Call the Stedman. Yes, I was calling on the off chance you might have a room available for the next two or three days. I know this is rather short notice, but this was a spur-of-the-moment idea. The lie tasted funny. If you allow me just one moment, I'd be happy to check for you, sir. I believe we have a room available tonight. Could you hold, please? Yeah. The line went silent. At that moment, the idea of severing the connection before the reservations clerk returned was overwhelming. Though he needed to go back, this might not be the time. Maybe in a couple months. That's it, he thought. I'll wait a little longer. With that thought in his mind, he reached over for the plunger just as the voice returned. Sir, we have an ocean room available, and I'd be more than happy to hold it for you if you like. Lloyd hesitated. He still wasn't a hundred percent sure about this decision. Sir? Oh, right. That'd be fine. 
He fished for his Amex card. I'm sorry if I sound a little out of it. To tell you the truth, I wasn't sure if you'd even be open. I thought I remembered someone telling me that you were in the process of remodeling. No, sir, that's all finished. We are right here and ready for your visit. Okay, that sounds fine. My name is Lloyd McPherson and my Amex number... Mr. McPherson, you of all people don't need to secure our room. You're a valued guest here, and it'd be our pleasure to have you stay with us again. As a matter of fact, I look forward to serving you personally. Lloyd sat back in his chair. Thank you, that's very kind. I'm looking forward to staying... Another lie. For a few days. I'll probably arrive sometime after nine tonight. The voice, smooth and polished as wood. We'll be waiting. Have a pleasant trip. The world went dark again. Thank you. Goodbye, then, Mr. McPherson. Goodbye. Lloyd replaced the receiver and stared at the telephone, stared like a man waiting for the next word from God himself. The open road and subliminal hint of salt in the air cleared his head a little. Lloyd had been driving for almost an hour and a half before he'd so much as sighed. He hadn't sung with the radio. He hadn't even yelled at the Volkswagen full of college kids that had pulled out in front of him earlier. His grief had been gray and deep, just like the weather. But even with the thickening clouds overhead, the sea air began to work its magic. Slowly. So slowly. He and Carrington had always loved the beach. Before they could afford a place on the ocean, they'd always dreamed of having their own. Then, when money was no problem, they'd found they'd enjoyed going to various hotels or renting a condo for a week or two. That way they could enjoy one another and someone else could worry about the maintenance, cutting the grass, and all the other little headaches that would go along with owning their own place. And now the ocean was starting to soothe him somewhat, but not before he replayed the events of their last day together. They'd read about the Stedman Resort in a regional travel magazine and immediately fell in love with it. The tennis courts, racquetball courts, ocean views, bicycle trails... An attentive staff were just the tip of the iceberg. The location on the outer banks of North Carolina was secluded enough to afford them privacy when they wanted it, but they were close enough to the quaint shops and historic sites of the surrounding area to immerse themselves to their heart's delight, and immerse themselves they had. Their days had been filled with walks on secluded beaches, picnics on the shore, treks to such exotic places as Duck and Nags Head, and wonderful evenings of dinner, dancing, and romance. The resort had a grand ballroom and an orchestra that played big band and swing music until the wee hours of the morning. They'd enjoyed their first trip so much they'd spent the past five Thanksgivings there. Almost five. Every newspaper in the state ran a story about the fire. Due to the tragic outcome, it even made the wire services. Fifty people lost their lives and a dozen more went to the hospital with various cuts, burns, and broken bones. The news people said they were lucky anybody had survived at all. But Lloyd hadn't felt lucky. The fire started outside the building and effectively trapped everyone inside the ballroom from the start. At first, no one noticed. It was Thanksgiving and the Stedman was hosting its annual black tie charity dinner and dance. Champagne, party favors, the works. The orchestra had been playing a jumping arrangement of Woodchopper's Ball that had two-thirds of the couples in attendance on the dance floor. The large hearth at the end of the room was so big you could roast an entire pig in it, crackled and snapped while the celebrants whirled and glided across the room. Blanche Lee was the first to notice something was wrong. 
She noticed the moment the window next to her shattered from the heat outside. An 18-inch dagger of glass pinned her to her chair and claimed the first casualty of the night. The first of many. Marge Newland, Blanche's newfound friend and fellow antique shop aficionado, screamed as shards of glass fell around her. She watched her companion die in horrible slow motion. Time was molasses thick, and through it all, Marge could neither move nor breathe. The scream siphoned off the air from her lungs, and the effort to refill them was thwarted by panic. She started to hyperventilate. At the same time Marge screamed, Joe Ramey burned his hand on the door which led to the outer hallway and into the main building. The massive oak door blistered his hand, but his yelp of pain had been lost in Marge's scream. Later that night, Joe would tell the district fire chief, Walt Richards, about the ensuing pandemonium. Other witnesses would tell the chief about Joe's rescuing five people from the blazing ruin. All Lloyd remembered from that point on was trying to get himself and Carrington out of the building. When the severity of the situation hit home, the herd instinct took over and the occupants of the room all headed for an exit in a giant cluster. Joe waved them away from the door, which had devoured two layers of his skin moments earlier, and part of the crowd shifted toward the next exit. Caught in the crush, he and Carrington had been swept along with the tide. Stumbling, sweat-soaked hands slipping but never completely losing contact, they scanned the room for another way out. When the line that fed the gas jets in the fireplace ruptured, the orchestra were dead where they sat. The resulting explosion unfolded a fan of solid blue flame that covered the entire bandstand. So intense was the blaze that the lead trumpet player's valve oil bottle erupted in his hand and created a blue-hot, formal-length glove of flame, elbow to fingertips. Nobody heard him scream. Overhead, a beam exploded and several others ignited as if by an unseen hand. The crowd, now very much like stampeding cattle, managed to find an exit and began to trample one another in an effort to leave the microcosm of hell. Pushing and shoving, trampling anything and anyone in their path, that was when the beam above Lloyd started to fall. His first instinct had been to pull Carrington to safety, and he pulled with all his might. He pulled against the tide of terrified humanity. He pulled against the tide of the inevitable. In the seconds that seemed to stretch into months, he saw her face, saw the look of horror on that smudged, perfect face. Somehow her cheek had been cut, and the blood seemed to have been painted in a long, thin line from ear to chin. Then time sped up, a demon train on its way to oblivion. He remembered screaming her name, remembered being shoved deeper into the crowd, remembered the feeling as her fingers slipped away, and he remembered the beam falling. An oaken inferno, close to a thousand pounds of flame and timber, came crashing down with an ear-splitting roar. It sounded like a victory cry straight out of hell. In the end, it had killed four people, Carrington and three others. He knew he'd screamed and tried to wait against the frightened, cow-eyed mass of people, but he couldn't remember how he managed to get out. And as he sat watching the world through a haze of tears, he didn't know how long he'd been sitting in the Stedman parking area. Lloyd switched off the Jaguar's engine, unbuckled his seatbelt, and got out of the car. The last half hour was a blur. He still thought about that night often enough, but it had been a while since the memory had been that vivid. Was that an omen? A message to retreat for a while longer? He didn't know. Couldn't bring himself to think about it now. The first thing he noticed when he entered the lobby was the sameness of it. It hadn't changed. The wood, the furnishings, the plants, even the smell, 
brass polish and heart pine, it was as if the steadman had never burned. He stared at the polished oak and gleaming brass. Everything was the picture of perfection. The hotel had been resurrected as if the fire had never happened. Something slick and terrible caressed his insides. The sound of the bellman's voice jolted him back to reality. May I be of service, sir? It was a voice accustomed to helping travelers caught up in the spell of the steadman. No impatience, just waiting to do his job, a job he'd no doubt performed since the steadman's opening. No, I, I mean, yes, I need to check in. My reservation is in the name McPherson. The bellman took the lone suitcase. Of course, Mr. McPherson, we've been expecting you. He bowed ever so slightly. Please follow me. The bellman escorted Lloyd to the front desk where he was greeted like an old friend. Mr. McPherson, the desk clerk said. I trust you had an enjoyable drive. He nodded to the bellman. Take Mr. McPherson's case to his room. Lloyd turned to tell his escort he'd be glad to handle his own bag, but the bellman and his suitcase were gone. Mr. McPherson, here's the key. You'll be in room 139. If there's anything else you need... Please don't hesitate to ring the desk. Lloyd turned and accepted the brass key. He looked at it, trying to find the answer to a question as yet unformed. Mr. McPherson, is there a problem? No, no, I was just... He looked at the desk manager, just trying to take in how perfect everything is. It's almost as if the Stedman never... Well, never... Eh. The desk manager smiled. I know it's quite astounding what can be done if you want it badly enough. True enough, I suppose. It's funny, though. Lloyd looked at the key again, noticed how the light rippled across the polished brass. I didn't realize you had rebuilt the entire complex. The desk manager, smooth, polished wood voice, smiled. Well, you've been rather preoccupied, if I may be so bold. The smile changed ever so slightly. Now... Lloyd answered. You're absolutely right. He pocketed the key and stepped back from the desk. I think a few days here might actually be just the thing I need to. The desk manager cut him off. Of course, we understand completely. This can't be an easy journey for you. The smile slipped away. So sad, so tragic, and so needless. Lloyd nodded but said nothing. Another sound had captured his attention. Music big band music. He looked around to his left and then back again. You really have made a comeback. He looked in the direction from which strains of I Can't Get Started flowed. Maybe you care to have a drink and listen to the orchestra for a while before you turn in, Mr. McPherson. I believe you'll find it beneficial. Lloyd started to refuse the suggestion and go straight to his room. The trip had been long, and he wasn't sure he was ready to go into the ballroom just yet. He was just now becoming accustomed to the idea he was here and having a conversation with the desk manager in the place that represented the darkest day of his life. In fact, he'd been so taken aback by the experience so far, he realized his credit card hadn't been imprinted. He hadn't even inquired about the desk manager's name. He turned to raise the issues with the desk manager, but was stopped short. The blonde man behind the counter extended his hand, and Lloyd shook it automatically. Now, Mr. McPherson, you go right in, order a drink, and make yourself comfortable. Don't be concerned about your room. We'll take perfect care of you. And should you need anything, ask for me personally. 
My name is Paul. The room seemed to tilt slightly, and he fouled the tilt toward the room where the orchestra played. He turned back just long enough for Paul to say, Go ahead in, sir. This is the reason you came. Before he could respond, his hand was on the brass door handle, and he was walking inside. The room was exactly the way he remembered it. The long mahogany bar to his right was polished to a high sheen. The brass rails and sparkling glass and crystal were reflected in the long mirror behind the bar, creating the illusion of a huge double bar, and the single bar was plenty large enough for the room. The tables were arranged in clusters around a pristine dance floor, recently polished to a high gloss. There were already fifty couples in various sections of the room. The orchestra played as if there was a New Year's Eve party in full swing. The band leader threw a two-finger salute in Lloyd's direction while giving the downbeat for Satin Doll. How many in your party, sir? Lloyd turned to the woman who had addressed him. Her platinum hair and fair skin was perfect contrast to her night-black dress. Just one, thank you. Will anyone be joining you later? Lloyd cocked his head as if he hadn't understood. No, I'm alone this evening. That's the truth if I ever told it, he thought as he was escorted to a table close to the bandstand. When he was seated, the platinum vision in black took his drink order and went back to the bar. For the first time since his arrival, Lloyd had a chance to really look and take everything in. It was the same, from the exposed beam right down to the design in the carpet. It was exactly the same. Like the desk manager had said, it was amazing what you could do if you wanted it badly enough. If only that were really true. A slight movement at his right elbow interrupted his thoughts. That didn't take long, he said as he turned to take his drink. No, not long at all, Carrington said in response. Carrington? The room shifted, went slightly out of focus. Lloyd could see nothing except the face of his beloved Carrington. Carrington was his life. Carrington was the exhale to his every inhaled breath. Carrington was dead. She died here. This was impossible. Heart hammering, hard to breathe, room spinning. Lloyd's heart jackhammered his ribs. Cold. Oh, dear God, he thought. I'm losing it. He closed his eyes and tried to bring his breathing under control. Calm. Deeper. Deeper. He opened his eyes. The specter of his dead wife was gone. Stress, he thought. That's what it is. I just came out here too soon. He turned to pick up his glass. If he ever needed a drink, he needed one now. Lloyd? The sound of his name turned his spine to ice. Carrington sat across from him, looking for all the world the way she'd looked that night they'd first came to the Steadman. He looked at her, saw without fully comprehending. Her face was the same, the same delicate nose, the same bright green eyes, the same porcelain skin. It was Carrington, but it couldn't be. What's happening to me? Lloyd asked to no one in particular. A last attempt to hold his emotions in their precarious safety net. What's happening? Carrington smiled. Don't you know? Really? Lloyd slid his chair back and jerked his hands away from the table as if it carried a twenty-two charge. This isn't happening. It it's not. A tear formed in the corner of one eye. It's not. The smile changed ever so slightly. Yes, it is, Lloyd. This is happening. Everything here is perfect, just the way you wanted it. Just the way it was that night. 
Her words were lost on him. How? I mean, he looked around the room. The orchestra played, had never stopped playing, while couples danced or sat or listened. Ice tinkling in glasses, smoke from a dozen cigarettes ambled toward the ceiling. Smoke. Fire. Then. Now. No, this is all wrong. All wrong. Why? She asked. It's what you wanted, isn't it? What I wanted? He turned to face what had once been his partner in life. What do you mean this is what I wanted? Lloyd, I know you've been hurting every day since... No, he cut her off and shook his head. I came here to come to terms with what happened. He sent less than a steady hand to fetch his drink. Is that really why you came? The bourbon was tasteless. There was no reassuring jolt of fire from throat to belly. He looked at the glass, then at his wife. What? You came here hoping to find it had all been a dream. You wanted the impossible to happen, and now it has. She held out a hand. So now you have to accept it. He moved his chair towards the table, hesitated. His heart was a thoroughbred straining against the gate. Carrington? A tear traced his way down his cheek. Many more followed the path it blazed. Carrington? How? I mean, how did... You did it. The words hit him with the force of a sledgehammer. How did I do this? How could I possibly have done this? If you want something bad enough... She smiled again, the smile he'd seen a thousand times, the smile that had buoyed his heart every day of their married life, the smile that now brought the reality of the situation home. He reached for her hand. It really is you. You're really here. Now it was his turn to smile. It's impossible and insane, but you're here. She nodded. I told you so. He looked at her. He couldn't help himself. She was exactly as she'd always been. Perfect. He released her hand and wiped the tears from his eyes. The orchestra played and the couple swirled around the dance floor, but as far as he was concerned, there was no one else in the world but Carrington, his Carrington. It was absolutely impossible and absolutely true. He stood and walked around the table. Can I hold you? The orchestra played a slow Glenn Miller tune. Carrington stood and held out her arms to him. Yes. Lloyd took her in his arms, savored the feeling of her. He buried his face in the soft junction of her neck and shoulder, pulled her closer. All the memories, all the suppressed feelings rushed back in a solid wave of emotion. She was here. They were together. And she felt, if you want something bad enough, different. He held her tighter. She didn't respond. He held her at arm's length. Carrington? What's wrong? She smiled again, the same smile he'd loved for years, but not the same. Almost the same. Just then when I held you, didn't you feel anything at all? No, we don't feel anything here. He bit his lower lip, partially habit, partially for the pain. He needed the pain, needed to clear his head. What do you mean you don't feel anything here? She motioned for him to sit. When I died, I saw the fire, the smoke, the crush of people, and I saw others around me watching the same thing. And then there was this kind of nothing for a while. I knew what was happening, but it didn't matter. Lloyd's head was throbbing like a rotten nerve in an abscessed tooth. The orchestra continued to play, and the couples continued to swirl. Then he realized what had bothered him from the moment he'd walked in. 
With the exception of the desk manager and hostess, no one had spoken. The couples at the table smoked and drank, but never uttered a single word. The orchestra played, but there was no banter between songs from the band leader. You see, we know everything we need to know here. This is a different level of existence, so the physical amenities of the other existence really aren't necessary. If you don't have feelings for me, then why did you come back? The tears started again, but this time there was no trickle. Lloyd, I didn't come back. You came to me. What you see is the essence of who I was, much like it was frozen in time. We don't age. We don't feel. We know what we need to know. We exist, and existence is enough. He attempted to understand. Then is this heaven? No. Is it hell? No. Lloyd felt the first stirring of anger push his fear off to the side. Then where are we? We're at the Stedman. You're Stedman. The black dawning of complete realization struck him like a fist. Carrington, you said there were others watching the event of that night. Do you mean these people too? She nodded. He began to shiver. The air had grown suddenly cold and the fire in the hearth provided no warmth. He watched the couple swirl soundlessly. The orchestra played on, no longer burned by the inferno, no longer feeling the music. Just shades of musicians playing shades of feelings long forgotten. If what you say is true, then I'm, I'm going back home. If I can't hold you, the real you, then I won't settle for an empty substitute. I, I just can't. He stood and turned to go. She took his arm. You can't leave. Another smile, mirthless, the memory of a smile. Those who haven't crossed over know so little. You assume it's always those from this side who cross over. Hauntings, you call them. She paused. If you want something bad enough, you can make it happen. Sometimes one of you crosses over here. That's what you did. She sounded so matter-of-fact now. There is no front desk. No Stedman. And tomorrow or the day after, someone will find your car parked where you left it, in front of the charred foundation of what used to be the Stedman Resort. Lloyd's breath caught in his throat. The room grew colder. The band played louder. He grabbed her shoulders and shouted to be heard above the increasing din of the orchestra. What are you saying? Do you mean I just stay here, never age, and keep company with a room full of what used to be? Not exactly. You'll age, but since time has so little meaning here, you'll age slowly. But you'll never die. She smiled her dead smile. The horror of the situation bloomed. A blood rose opening in his mind. He would age beyond ancient with the specter of his fondest memory eternally before him, never changing, never caring. The realization was too much. He pushed the almost Carrington aside and raced toward the nearest exit. He turned the brass handle and rushed toward the lobby and his waiting car. The room was exactly the way he'd remembered it. The long mahogany bar to his right was polished to a high sheen. The brass rails and sparkling glass and crystal were reflected in a long mirror behind the bar, creating the illusion of a huge double bar. And the single bar was plenty large for the room. The tables were arranged in clusters around a pristine dance floor, recently polished to a high gloss. There were already fifty couples in various sections of the room. The orchestra played as if there was a New Year's Eve party in full swing. The band leader threw a two-finger salute in Lloyd's direction while giving the downbeat for Satin Doll. How many in your party, sir? Lloyd turned to the woman who addressed him. Her platinum hair and fair skin were a perfect contrast to her night-black dress. 
He couldn't speak. Undiluted dread clutched his throat with fingers of cold glass bone. Will anyone be joining you later? He heard a soft click as the door closed behind him. Uh, yes? Thank you, Thomas. Thomas Smith says that he may be the only writer to ever work on projects with Stephen King and the Reverend Rick Warren all at the same time. His short story, We Create Them, will appear in Diminished Media's upcoming anthology, Monsters. The Heart is a Determined Hunter was read for us tonight by Drake Vaughn. Drake is a Californian, and along with narrating, Drake is a genre fiction writer who specializes in offbeat thrillers and horror with a psychological bent. His first novel, The Zombie Generation, was published in April of 2012 by Dead Orb Press. A collection of his short stories and novellas, Carvings, is due out in early 2013. He lives in California with his wife and a spunky black cat, named Shadow, who has returned from the dead on quite a number of occasions. Now, speaking of spunky black cats, let me tell you a little tale of true terror. This week, we made a few changes in the bedroom here. They required that we move a rather nice cheval mirror, it had been in one corner, and we had to move it to another spot, said spot being the place where our cat's six-foot stepladder had been in situ ever since they joined us. This was a thing we had used to get our things up into the shelves and onto the top of a walk-in closet, but it stayed there because the cats seemed to like it. Tabitha and Mahler loved climbing it, loved hanging from various heights on it. Mahler used it in extremis to perch on, then leap onto my tummy when they hadn't been fed early enough to suit. Now their ladder was gone and replaced by this mirror. The witch had always been a part of their lives and utterly ignored, well, forever. Suddenly, this thing was noticed. This other room was discovered. Those other cats peered out at them. Tabitha, ever the practical one, sniffed, touched noses with her double in the mirror, looked around at the back, then ignored it. But Mahler, Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, has become obsessed. He could not enter the bedroom without crouching, stalking, Stalking it, that new room, that new place, nights became a series of approaches, avoidances. Sometimes it involved long bouts of hind-leg rearing, front paw swiping in desperate strokes at the glass. As he did this, the mirror would then swing back on its swivels, thus changing the view and banging against the wall, all at the same terrifying time, thus creating added approach-avoidance conflicts. Finally, last night, Cecilia shouted at Mahler, 
Out of the night, she screamed it in the voice of the cat god. Stop! Stop that Mahler! Something she had never done. This morning, Mahler... Mahler was afraid of everything. Me, the room, his breakfast. His tail was like a bottle brush, his ears flat back. And now, 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 well, now he's lost faith. He's been working hard to protect us from the intrusion of this new dimension into our home, these strange beasts, so like yet unlike, who attempted to break through. I think there's nothing for it but to reshuffle and return the ladder, move the cheval glass back to its bland, anonymous sight, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they'll begin to ignore it again. I, I wonder, though, will that be enough? Has the knowledge that this other universe with its dark demons and clawed dangers that live so close, just a claw's point away... Has that forever altered Mahler's view of the world and his place, as well as ours, in it? Well, that will nearly do us for the evening, children of the night. That will nearly do us for the year. Next week, officially, we close the big book of darkish things. That was Tales to Terrify 2012 and put it on the shelf next to the book, the book of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, the copy of which awaits you in Lulu Limbo, awaits your order, that is, your order to bring it into being and come posted to your life. Go now, click the link, and buy the book. Uh, be still, Larry. Go buy the book if you want. If you don't, well, I don't know. So, thank you again, Cher, Tony, Skeet, all of you authors, all of you readers, listeners, all of you visitors. Thank you yet again. Have a good New Year, despite what I said. And before we part for the week, for the year, I'd like to read a little thing. It's, it's a winter thing, a thing of memory and age. Mostly, it's, it's a short thing. The fence... At the yard's end once was lower than now. It must have been. Though it is, as it always was, no change but for age. But I know that once I could run from the house to that barrier thing of wood and wire and with a push and leap go weightless over, floating it and slap foot down and smack crack run, beyond my way without breath or thought. Not now, no. But there is a memory of once locked here, of a dozen running steps, a careening slide down a night of winter dark when all the world was falling white and whirling sparks of alley light, when I could leap that fence and make my shuffled way through piling snow toward unknown land still footless down ahead to where the alley bent and went away. Then... Slowing, stopping in snow and night, just a hundred feet from home. The white, still whispering, silent light, a million flakes still falling, filling in behind. I stopped to consider 
the dark ahead, felt the wind and the whisker of the storm that kissed my cheek, and I turned to see my footsteps back to home and life and time, and watched my paces drift in, filled, till smooth and flat, and found my passage out, erased, and the way back gone. Well, thank you for listening yet again. It's time for you to be up and doing, to be bright. Now, you need not be chipper tonight. Year's end is not a chipper time. Well, you know how I feel about that. However, since our gatherings in the nook are hopefully a mass media kind of thing, I suppose I should offer a mass media kind of send-off. So I wish you all the happiness and joy for 2013. We've passed the Mayan apocalypse, I think, and have another 25,000 years or so to go before our next. Though, do you think that in 25 millennia, no matter how smart they were, no matter how clever, no matter how good, that they may have made a slip of just a few months, a few years in their calculations toward the cycle's end. Hmm? Well, anyway, let's say we've begun anew, and the galaxy is embarking on yet another twist round itself. As you put on your coats, your galoshes, wrap your scarves around your necks and shove your mitts into your mittens, please know that Tecilia, Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, and I, along with Tony, Cher, Skeet, and all the tales to terrify, offer you our best and our warmest wishes for the coming seasons. And as you wander home tonight through new-fallen snow, yes, and in the silence it brings tonight, please remember that we'll be here next week and the weeks after, and the weeks after that, and from now until whenever. And we will continue to offer up, week by week by week, something terrifying, something perhaps truly awful, something dark, and maybe, maybe even something thoughtful, something to inspire you all, to bring forth your pleasantest dreams. Hmm?
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.